This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffeehouse Shots. I'm Katie Pauls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson, James Forsyth and James Johnson. With the Bank of England predicting what could be a two-year recession, which would cover the majority, if not all, of Rishi Sunak's premiership before going to the polls, what can the Prime Minister realistically achieve or have to show by the time of the next election? James Johnson, to kick things off, can you just give us a sense of where public opinion is when it comes to Rishi Sunak and also the Conservative Party? So there's a very large divide opening up in the polls between views of the Conservative Party, which remains very negative in the wake of Liz Truss's premiership, and Rishi Sunak, who actually voters tentatively quite like. His approval rating is positive with some pollsters. He's ahead of Keir Starmer with Redfield and Wilton strategies, and he's close to Keir Starmer in, in the YouGov poll. So, And that's also reflected in the focus groups. People very negative about the government overall, but quite positive about the Prime Minister. So the big question is, which of those is a better indicator? My sense is, is that the PM numbers are the key ones to look out for, because so much of how the public view politics is through the prism of the leader. When I ask in my focus groups, what do you feel about the Conservatives? How do you feel about Labour? People almost always respond by using the leader as the main way they see politics. They talk about Keir Starmer, they talk about Rishi Sunak. So I think that's there is a path for the Conservatives and Rishi Sunak. It's a narrow path, but I do think they are back in the game compared to a month ago. And James, in terms of, I suppose, the long-term prospects of what Rishi Sunak can do, because you have a situation where if Rishi Sunak's personal approving ratings go down a bit and the Conservatives go up a little, it still suggests quite a big defeat heading for the Tories. So is there much that we have from voters in terms of what they would need to see from Rishi Sunak that would keep them on side or perhaps even increase support? Yes, we've actually been looking into this in focus groups this week and last, and the main way that voters are seeing things is in the context of that autumn statement coming up later this month. They know that's coming, and they know that's a big test for the Prime Minister. And there's two things they're looking for from that. One is honesty. They really want politicians to level with them now about the situation. They know there's there's very bad debt, and they know that something needs to be done about that debt. So they want British United to be honest with them and upfront, rather than trying to gloss over the situation. The second thing they want is fairness. So they want to see richer people paying in more. They want to see big companies paying in more. People often talk about the the big gas companies in particular, big energy companies in particular, as wanting to see them pay, pay more towards it. So if Rishi Sunak can land in that place in the autumn statement with a sense of honesty and contrition and a sense of fairness, then there may be a path for him. Look, I think it's a hard path, as I say. I think it's something that is going to have to be, you know, a year of real competence and then a pivot onto what their future vision is for the country. But if they can get that right, then it may be actually that the autumn statement later this month is actually a pretty positive moment for them with the public rather than the negative one that lots of people are braced for. Fraser, a year of competence from this government and the Tory party, do you think that's achievable? I do, actually. It is achievable, whether it's enough to get to 20... I mean, the problem is that when when that year is over, say they go to the election, will they be able to plausibly say that it's either chaos with Labour or stability with us? 
I think the words stability and Tory are a bit of a stretch now in the minds of most voters. So I'm not sure that a year of competence will be able to undo the memory of what people have just been through. I'm going to reserve judgment on how recoverable this situation is for another couple of weeks. I mean, we've seen the... I was having dinner in Westminster a couple of weeks ago and um, one of the MPs I was with leaned over to his mobile phone and showed me a Tory poll showing them on 14%. And he was saying, that's it, we're never coming back from this. Now, right now, that has, has changed. The Spectator Data Hub has got Labour on 50% and the Tories on 26%. That's an average of six opinion polls. A little better than what it was, but a 24-point gap is not one that screams Tory victory at the next election. Again, if you want to look at the betting markets, um, they would say that there is a 50% chance of Labour majority. The next most likely outcome, 23% chance of Labour minority, 18% chance of Conservative majority. So that's fairly low. I mean, you can't place much store in the betting markets. But right now, I think most people, if they had to bet, would bet either on a Labour majority or some Labour coalition. Now, James Forsyth, if you have a situation where you have economic turmoil, tricky decisions in the autumn statement, and effectively not much money to go round, does Rishi Sunak have any way of carving out his own agenda? Does he even want to? He's made a very big thing of the 2019 election manifesto because ultimately he doesn't have a personal mandate. Yeah, so I think there's obviously a whole bunch of essential firefighting that the government needs to do. I think I think James and Fraser are, are both completely right that in some ways talking about politics until we've seen how this autumn statement has landed you know we are we are all we are all waiting for that that will define not completely defeat the point of this the rest of this, no, no that will define the rest of this parliament i think the other thing that we shouldn't take our eyes off which i think actually i personally think remains the biggest political risk to the conservative party is the nhs the nhs is going into this winter in a state where there are seven million people on the waiting list the British Heart Foundation is saying that 230 people a week extra are dying because of slow ambulance response times. So, I mean, remember when we talked about in the summer what a nightmare winter was going to face whoever won that first leadership contest, the NHS was the big thing that everyone used to talk about. So we shouldn't forget that as an issue. But I think having said that, I think there are some things that Rishi Sunak has long argued for that you can do in the current circumstances one of them is something that you know if you go back and look at his May's lecture back in February which I think is the kind of nearest we got to his kind of personal credo on how he thinks you get the economy growing lots of the things in there you can still do you know for example you know greater incentives to invest in capital greater incentives to invest in people one of his big bugbears has been that, that you know that British businesses spend half the European average on training their workers I think you can use the tax system to encourage things like that without it costing a huge amount of money and I think mean, giving you some agenda and, and things that you can talk about but I think but, but James I mean, just quickly on that that is I mean I understand how Rishi is annoyed about that but if he, that were to change that would take years wouldn't it I mean there's no way he would be able to demonstrate any kind of change in the amount of workers being trained by the next election. And the reason that companies do this is that their experience has taught them as British governments will usually turn on the immigration taps. So right now there's a war of nerves going on between industry and between the government. And they're saying, the care homes, for example, are saying, look, we can't possibly get anybody to fill these jobs. You need to be giving us more immigrants. And there are calls from the government to do this. So they're not budging. And it strikes me that if there is a new settlement where industry is taught, no, there's 5.3 million working age people on as work benefits, go and hire them instead. That process will take years. 
before industry lets go of its knee-jerk reaction of importing skills it can't find domestically? Well, I think on welfare, I think actually the, the big problem is that conditionality, the, the success of welfare reform, which I think is one of the, the initial successes of the, of the Tory government in 2010 to 2016, but because conditionality was turned off during COVID, I mean, you, you went backwards. I think turning that conditionality back on means that you can try and achieve that. I mean, you also have to look at the fact that a lot of these people are off work because these NHS waiting lists are so long. So people are awaiting treatment for mental or physical health issues. And you need to find a way to deal with that. When Chloe Smith was Work and Pension Secretary, she was interested in the idea of moving these people to the front of a queue, which I think would be a sensible step that the government could take. I mean, it'd be fascinating to know what, what Jane thinks on the, you know, how much would people think that was unfair queue jumping? How much would people think that was a sensible, pragmatic step? So I think there are things that you can do. But I also think that the, one of the big challenges for the, for the government ine- inevitably is that whenever you talk about, well, we started this change in progress, that Labour will just scream back, well, you've been in power for 14 years, what do you mean? James Johnson, when you're looking, I suppose, at the issues that will matter the most to voters in the coming years, as you mentioned, there's a desire for an honest conversation about the country's finances. But at the same time, if there are cuts to public services or even just the current situation where people feel that they cannot get basic things, that's surely going to cut away, even if you're having an honest conversation about why that is the case. So is that one of the big problems? And is also, you know, an issue such as immigration, is that going to be a very live topic? Yeah, and look, if people blame the Conservatives for the bad economic situation they're in, then that's going to be very difficult for the Conservatives. The big question now is whether they actually blame Liz Truss rather than the rather than the Tories as a whole. Now, at the moment, it looks like it's both, but actually, if Rishi Sunak is able to, you know, stabilise things and able to look like, be that honest and fair person, then they may well change their views on that. Look, I think in terms of the next election, it's important to remember that voters are pretty realistic. They're not expecting their sort of personal situation to be wildly better in two years' time. They're pretty sure that this next few years is going to be tough. They were sure of that earlier in the year because they knew the amount of COVID debt and they knew the amount of trouble that the Russian invasion of Ukraine had caused on the domestic front too. Obviously, that's become more difficult, but they're pretty realistic about that. Voters are not going to be, you know, sat in the red wall, you know, with a checklist of what's been delivered, what's not. The thing that they're looking for is which party from their record, can they trust to deliver the improvements for their lives over the next five years? At the moment, Labour is clearly winning that race because of the Conservatives' competence after Liz Truss's mini-budget and and the leadership change. But it's possible that the Conservatives can claw that back by being seen to be that having that offer. And I think that's a really key thing. It's like, Fraser's absolutely right. Competence is not is a necessary, but not a sufficient condition. And if the Conservatives can't really make that stability argument against Labour, then they need to go one better and make the change argument again. It's why Boris Johnson did so well in 2019 and Theresa May did quite poorly in 2017. In 2019, the Conservatives had a really compelling change message. In 17, they didn't. And I think that applies to Labour and the Conservatives. Voters are looking for that change. They are fed up with things and they want to see things get better. They're open-minded about which party that comes from, but anyone going to that, into that election and offering continuity is going to meet a real struggle, I think. James Forsyth, picking up on James Johnson's point there about how the Tories could have a way through if people blamed Liz Truss specifically for the financial situation and not Rishi Sunak. Do you think that's viable? Do you think he can do that? I think what's difficult 
is, as James said at the very beginning of this podcast, too many James on this podcast, at the moment you've got Rishi Sunak's ratings in one place, the Conservative Party's ratings in another place. And as James said, those two are inevitably going to converge. The question is, where do they converge? I think probably the big question about where they converge was determined by how competent people feel the government is. If people come to feel that the mistakes that were made were a kind of aberration and the Tories are generally competent then I think you have some hope of that. If people have a feeling that the Tories are, you know, it's always chaos with the Conservatives, then I think that is much, much more difficult. Actually, but, but on a party management level, you had Rishi Sunak when he gave his first speech as Prime Minister to specifically say that Liz Truss had made mistakes yeah. and he was clearing up some of that. So do you think it's viable for Rishi Sunak to do more of that? Because in a way, if you do do more of that, perhaps it would work to James Johnson's point. But I'm not sure what it would do for party unity. What do you think? I, I think they have no choice but to do that. I mean, you know, because... Clearly, that did happen, right? And you, you saw what Andrew Bailey said this week on on Thursday when he raised interest rates about the the effects of the mini budget. I think trying to, I think if you try and deny that that happened, the voters are going to think you're taking them for fools. Fraser, just on that point about how much of this is to do with Liz Truss and how much is global factors, do you think it is possible for Rishi Sunak and the current government to suggest a lot of this is Liz Truss? Because in a way, people might just associate it with the Tory party when some of this is down to factors outside any government's control i think they've broadly lost that argument it's a shame because even the bank of england in its inflation report this week actually produced a little graph showing that broadly speaking half was down to global factors and half was was uk factors now this is what the trust government tried to argue at the time but it got absolutely nowhere and the labor was able to make a very clean efficient and credible attack line that trusts borrowed money to give tax cuts to the rich that trashed the economy and as a result everybody's mortgages going up so i think those who come to renew their mortgages and remember these fixes are coming off in about you know the, in the new year it's going to happen for for months throughout next year people who were on low mortgages are going to swap them for interest rates that are twice three times what they were before i think they will blame the conservatives whether they blame this trust or rishi sunak it will make them think again if they hear a Tory at election time saying, vote Conservative because we will keep your costs down. This does not seem very much. I mean, we're about to get a government that's about to raise taxes, probably yet again, in yet another violation of this manifesto pledge. And the way I see this is, is more of the Tories not being able to plausibly claim to be the party of low taxation or the party of economic competence. Normally you vote Tories because they're cruel but competent. Take away competence and you're not left with much. So just finally, not to put the two Jameses too heavily on the spot, but starting you, James Johnson, do you think there is a path to a Tory majority? And I know all the caveats, because we haven't seen the autumn statement, but we have seen obviously the huge Labour poll lead. Do you think there is a path right now, if Rishi Sunak takes the right decisions, to a Tory majority at the next election? I think it's a very, very narrow path, but I do think it is there. If you'd have asked me that a month ago, you know, with Liz Truss and even even in context of an, a future leader, I would have probably said no, or at least, you know, it was extreme tightrope stuff. And, and obviously, remember also, I'm not talking about majorities of 80 or 60 here. We're talking about just squeaking it. I think it obviously depends on a huge amount of what happens. But if Rishi Sunak can land that autumn statement correctly, and it is interesting that the expectations in the focus groups for that are that, you know, everyone's going to have to pay more and they're not going to tax the rich 
and they're not going to put liability on big companies. Now, if the briefings in the press, which the public don't seem to have picked up on, that actually Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak might be targeting capital gains tax, they might be targeting an extension of the windfall tax, then that could come as a surprise to voters. If they can get that tone right, if they can show over the next year, you know, through the hard stuff that actually they can deliver competence, and then, because that's not enough, and then they give their bold, exciting plan for the future, then I do think there is a path. Labour, there are still lots of hesitations about Labour. There are lots of hesitations about Keir Starmer. And you mentioned immigration earlier, Katie. You know, that's a huge one. We've seen that this week. And although people think the government is doing very badly on immigration, they still really don't trust Labour on it. I did a focus group this week. Most people in the group said that they trusted the Conservatives on immigration over Labour, even after they'd just been, you know, slamming the government for their record on it. So there's a path. It's a narrow one. And I think one thing that we've sort of said implicitly throughout the podcast, but I'll just quickly say explicitly to finish off, is that I think it requires a very almost presidential focus on Rishi Sunak. He is their best asset by far. And at this point, if you're looking at that polling gap, you're almost thinking, barely mention the Conservatives at all. You're going to have to focus on, on Rishi Sunak, the man, because he is their strongest asset by quite some margin. James Forsyth? I think there is a very narrow path. I think also one thing we Could should... Could use slightly different words from each James's? Well, no. But I mean, it, it, it... If you can share the name, we can't both say very okay. narrow path. But what I would also say is it. I think one of the things we a should... small landing zone? Yeah. I mean, look, it is like trying to land the plane. In the proverbial jungle, there's a small clearing. You can bring the plane down there, but there's very little margin for error. I think one thing I would also say is we live in an era of massive political volatility. And I think that that is a... Factor. I remember when things were at their worst for the Tories, probably about the same day that Fraser Nelson was talking about the Tory MP showing him an opinion poll with them at 14% and saying that's done. I was talking to a Tory MP and they were talking about their own seat. And I said, oh, come on, don't be serious. Your seat has been Tory since the beginning of time. There's no way that goes. And this person made a very interesting point to me, which was basically, I think my seat is in danger, he thought, because he just argues that the bedrock vote for both Tory and Labour is much, much lower than it has been. Voters shop around far more. There is less tribal allegiance. And so the bedrock vote is lower. And I think that is both a reason for Tory optimism at the moment, in that that suggests that the situation is not as irretrievable as these Labour leads of 26 points would suggest. But also, I think it is a reminder of how badly things could go wrong for them because, you know, the flaw in the Tory vote and in both main part, major parties' vote, is lower than it has been historically. Thank you, James Forsyth, Fraser Nelson and James Johnson, and thank you for listening. 